You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered with me, James O'Brien. My guest this week is a genuine Renaissance man, by which I mean that Danny Wallace has achieved more in his career, despite still being in his early 40s, than most people will achieve in 10 lifetimes. Um, my personal favourite is his starring role in the Assassin's Creed video games. But I'm keen to find out more about him away from the career achievements, away from the, the cult books and the films and the, and the novels and the TV shows. I've known him for years, but I don't actually know him very well. He's here to talk about his latest book, Fuck You Very Much, which is a uh, an attempt to unravel why people are rude and also why they're getting ruder. Do you know why I find you so fascinating? Uh, no. Would you like to? Well, okay. <laughs> it's because you are... You've done so much cool stuff in your career, and yet you've never seemed to me to be particularly ambitious. Just on the rare occasions where our paths have crossed, you haven't struck me as one of those people that's constantly banging on doors, hoping one of them will open, or is looking at other people's success and feeling, as Gore Vidal put it, a little bit of you die inside every time <laughs> someone you know does well. Yeah. And, and yet, and, and this is probably me wrong, you, you seem for at least for the best part of 15, 20 years to have been writing your own ticket. Ha! Well, sort of. That's that's kind of the um, the hope and the ideal. And my um, my sort of uh, philosophy to it has always been: go where the fun is, right? But try and do the fun well, because then you'll get asked to have fun again. And either the fun will be in the same area, or that fun will go quiet. But there'll be more fun over here. But so long as you try and do all the fun well, then that's really the the dream of it. I've, I've, I don't feel comfortable doing one thing. No, clearly. I want to do lots of them. When did this philosophy kick in? When would you have sort of recognised it as, as being in development? I think um, I've always liked projects, and I think of everything as like a project, whether it's a radio oh, even show. Even since childhood? Yeah, at school, I wasn't particularly interested in, um, uh, in the lessons. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Really. But I, I love the projects, right? Okay. So, And it, it could be the most boring thing in the world. You could have said to me, Danny, today you need to do a project that's going to take you a month on the history of wool. In yeah. Portugal. Yeah. And I have no interest in that whatsoever. However, because it was my thing, my project, I'd try and make it the greatest project that I could. So I would find everything out about Portuguese wool and wool in general and then Portugal and then try and just create this thing that was mine. So Self-contained. So if you had to swat up on Portuguese wool and write an essay about it, you're not interested. No. But in terms of doing a project with a beginning, a middle and an end and something that everyone else can gather around and look at afterwards. It was more that, that I felt happy with. So it was it was less showing it to people and more, I've done that. Oh, really? Yeah. So even then, not, not even a tiny bit of look at me, look at me, look at me. Or I look, I look at think... what I've done. That's what I mean by a lack of ambition and a lack of... I think I have ambition, but I'm not ruthless. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So like, I want to do good stuff. And I, I, I want to work. And I've got this kind of uh, Catholic guilt without being Catholic about yes. working. Cause, oh, have you? Yes, yeah, because yes. you, when you, when you uh, work for yourself and you're doing your own kind of projects, you, you feel like you should be doing something and should be moving forward somehow. But it's, part, it's to make part, me happy. Part of it will be then you don't have focused goals because you enjoy doing stuff that you wouldn't expect to enjoy doing. You're back to the projects at school. It, it's not about the subject of the project is about the act of putting the project together yeah i think you can make anything interesting and, and like with with um, a lot of the books um 
I didn't know where I'd end up. No. Um, and I didn't know what I'd learn. But I, I, I would think... That's it, infectious it, as well, isn't it? Because that's yeah. why people come with you. I think so. I think of it like a swimming pool. Yes. And you jump in and you swim around and you see where you should go. And it's like that with, with the novels. I, I don't have an end. I don't yes. know how it's going to end. Because I always thought that was quite a good thing. Lots of writers have different techniques. And so they would, you know, you go to people's houses and they've got a whole board with every single scene that's going to happen. And for me, it was always the beginning. It's the exciting idea. With, with everything that links everything together, is, is, it's about that initial idea. And then the fun bit is where can this go? What should it be and where could it go? And that's what I try and do. What was home like then? Why, why do you think, was there anything at home that would explain your passion for project? Home was quiet. I'm an only child. So I lived in a sort of quite grown-up world. I had to make friends quickly because I didn't have brothers and sisters to sort of rely on. We moved around a lot. So I had to keep doing that. So I think that that, that's probably informed what I do quite a bit as well because it involves making friends with people, whether that's on the radio and making friends with listeners or whether that's in books. I always try and write in a way that I tell you the story in the way that I would tell you the story if we were down the pub together. So when someone approaches me, as happened this morning, a fellow came up and he said, I've I've, I've read your books. And then he told me which one in particular he'd read. And because uh, I knew how I'd told that story to him, it felt like I already knew him. It felt like we had a connection. It felt like we had sat down and had that chat already. So you feel like you're making friends a lot. And the radio is the same. Radio is the same. That connection. You love radio, don't you? I love radio. I love radio. It's it's writing and radio for me. So... Back to, back to childhood and school and the emerging notion that these enthusiasms and passions that you had could somehow be a career. Was there a moment where you kind of thought, am I going to be able to avoid the rat race? Am I going to be able not to put on a suit and go to work? Am I going to be able to have fun? For well, a for a while, that was all I wanted was to be in an office. because Yeah, because um, I got into, I got into uh, Sega and like Sonic the Hedgehog and Golden Axe. It never occurred to me. And like my neighbor had one and I wasn't interested at all. I wanted to go out and play. But suddenly we were in a new town and I didn't have that many friends yet. And I remembered my mate's gaming thing and I was like, that would be good to have. Okay. And so, um, so I sort of I managed to get one. Mega Drive. A Mega Drive. Yeah. And I played it. But again, it was that thing of what else can I do with this? And work experience at school was coming up. And I was offered the chance to um, dig ditches in a garden centre yes. or refile files in an accountant's office, neither of which uh, screamed, uh, pick me. And I knew that there was a, um, a magazine in my town that did Sega stuff, Sega Power. And I asked them. I sort of inveigled my way. I just How old are you now, roughly? I'm about um, 13, 14. Okay. And I, I, managed to, I managed to get in, and I just made myself indispensable. And um, I, I, I was doing all the stuff that I would have done at the accountant's office, refiling things and just making cups of tea for people who already had them and all this kind of stuff. And um, one day a reviewer got ill, and they said, do you want to have a crack at writing a review? And I stayed up as late as I could playing this game to death. It was not a good game. And in those days, all you had to do uh, to write a review was you had to mention parallax scrolling, which I still don't know what it is. And then you'd give it a sort of um, a middle, a sort of a 65%. Yeah. And you'd say, try before you buy. Right. So it's just, you just so get cover your ass. Yeah. You're cool. But I was really going for it with this one. And okay. I got taken to the editor's office and I thought he was going to say, we can't run this. And yeah. he said, do you want a job? And so I had this like... This is, this is, so it starts at 14, because I've often looked at you and thought, you bastard. How did you, how did you land that? And how did you land this? And you were, because I, re- I review video games for the Daily Mail in my 30s, but that was not nearly, <laughs> it's not nearly as exciting. I was great for a teenager getting 14 free games. years old, and you can 
to have your pick. Yeah, yeah, Mega yeah. Drive you games. get your games, and and, you, and also I was I was part of like a, a brother and sisterhood there of these people who were to me seemed proper grown ups. Yes, but were straight out of university. They sure. were twenty three, twenty four, working on magazines where the circulation was hundreds of thousands, and they looked after me, and I really felt like I want to be one of them. What about being a staff writer at Total Magazine? Okay, And then you started yeah. your own comedy magazine called Comedy Review. So already you're this astonishing sort of um, polymath. But also, do you have a fear of rejection? Uh, yeah, I think, I think we all do, but it's how you deal, it's how you deal with it. I mean, p- most of my job is rejection. Yes, but, but that's what I mean, makes me think you don't have a fear of it. Um, I, I don't think I do have a fear of it, because the, the next idea is an idea that, away. That's a lovely psychological condition to have, isn't it? Where you, 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 you just think it doesn't matter if this one doesn't work out because something else... Because some people are crushed for six months every time they get told no. Yeah, and it can add up. It's added up on, on lots of my friends who do similar things. And yeah. um, it has weighed down on them and, and made them, as you get older, feel, yeah, a bit crushed by it. And uh, Because for everything that you get off the ground, there are half a dozen projects that... Yeah, at least, you know, at least. But that's why it's good to do as many different things as possible. Yeah, I get that. Because you can go, well, that's not working, let's do this. You started Comedy Review, but you were associate editor as well, and it closed after five issues. Yeah, it did. I took a year out. I was going to go to university, but I I didn't know what I was going to do. Fair enough. Um, If I hadn't taken the year out, I would have ended up doing geography at Cardiff. Yes. I have no interest in geography. I got... Uh, oh, Cardiff's very nice. Cardiff's though. lovely. <laughs> I did well in the project at Geography because it was a project. bloody project. It was at Oxbow Lake. It was about Midford Brook. <laughs> it was about Midford Brook, a brook Still that proud. no one's heard of. Still proud. Yeah, I did very well. I did very well. But that tricked me into thinking, oh, maybe I should do Geography. Right, right. No, right. no, absolutely not. It would have been a disaster. You had done an A-level. You hadn't just... Uh, yeah, I did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it so, uh, took a year out. Um, I got a job on... It was a Nintendo magazine. Um, and then we wanted to start a comedy magazine because we were into comedy. I grew up just listening to comedy um, rather than music. Who who were your favourite? I would listen to um, Faulty Towers kind of on a loop as I went to bed. The audiobooks were great because all the physical comedy... these are on tapes. They're on cassette, yeah. 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 And all the physical comedy had to be described by Andrew Sachs in in the character of Manuel. really? Now he's hitting me on the head. Um, I didn't know that. That's double funny. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Tom Lehrer. Yes, of course. um, I was hugely into him. And then uh, a friend gave me a tape at school of On the Hour. Mm. And I had no idea that radio comedy could be that. I didn't know you could do that. It was this, you know, um, spoof news show, you know it, um, uh, re-editing stuff, a different type of humour, some of the greatest new performers at that stage. We've we've had Amanda Yanucci's done this, Mm. done Unfiltered, and and a couple of other people who, like Richard Herring was involved in some of the early incarnations. And it is odd, and it's it's obviously not planned, uh, how many of the people that we've done on Unfiltered have some sort of either connection to or enthusiasm for that show. It was a game changer. Real game changer. Oh, it was a huge game changer. Why? Um, because it, it came from it was so not Radio Four. Yes, it came from a completely different angle. It was beautifully made, beautifully edited. A thousand ideas. You felt part of something. You did, didn't you? Because you knew that it was on the hour. Yeah, you're it, in on it. Yeah, you wanted to share it. Mm. It was the first Radio Four comedy I wanted to share with people, and that got me into uh, you know a lot more things and, and watching stand-ups. And then stand-ups would come. I was living in Bath at that point, and stand-ups would come to uh, the little comedy club, and I'd, I'd go every week and drag my friends if I could, and had life-changing moments there, like seeing Tim Vine, who I'd never heard of, yeah. for the first time, come out, and I was. You know when you're so in pain yes. from laughter? Yes. And usually when you have that with your friends, 
there's going to come a point where you stop laughing. Mm. But when it's a comedian as good as Tim Vine, and you know he's got another 15 minutes, and you're hurting, then moments like that made me so excited. John Shuttleworth was my first gig that I went to see where I had my first pint at the same night. So comedy had this real sort of... um, my life is full of sort of moments where, where those things matter and those people matter. And was there a burgeoning sense that you could do it or, or you would want to do it or were you always happy in the audience? I think that there would have been two or three times in my life that would have been the right time for yeah. me to do stand-up. However, they all coincided with being the worst time. So after Comedy Review folded, it was this magazine and we tried to take a serious look at comedy, but it was kind of, it was overpriced it wasn't stocked in many places. It was doomed. Apart from that. Yeah. The recipe <laughs> doomed <so>. for failure. <laughs> and right after that would have been a great time to do it. Yeah. However, I'd just been a guy writing about comedy. And I think that you need a couple of years to be accepted. And I think that people would... I felt I felt very strongly that people would think, oh, yeah, you think you can do it. Of course. And B, would sort of want me to fail. Yeah. It's an astonishing relationship between the comedian and the critics, because even though to outsiders, comedy critics aren't... I mean, in in, in the journalistic hierarchy, Mm. they're not very important. Mm. But but a comic who got a two-star review eight eight years ago at Edinburgh will remember the name and the star sign of the critic that did it. And so... And, and then occasionally they have had a go at it themselves. I think one of the Chortle writers maybe had a go at Edinburgh, or certainly one of the quite well-known critics, and they were just praying for him to die on his own. Really? Yeah, well, exactly, that's it, and I didn't want that. <laughs> I understand I why. really didn't want that. And I was too nice as well. Oh, do you know, reviews. I was about to say... We, we, it was very much 65% try before you buy. Yes. It was that like, again. The only thing that was missing was parallax scrolling from my, from my reviews. But I just, I just loved it. I just, you know, loved that world, and... Um, and then went to university. Um, Westminster to study media. Study media. And this was at a time when there weren't that many. You're only four years younger than me. And it was, it, but when I was contemplating universities, media, my dad was a journalist. Media was still something that an old school journalist would laugh at the idea totally. of you, you studying it. There weren't many courses around then. People, no. younger viewers will find this yeah. hard to believe. No, absolutely. It was, it was, uh, they were laughed at. And yeah. I was going to a former poly who initially rejected me. Because um, they said that I, I hadn't uh, I hadn't shown enough interest in the media. I was okay. like, I just launched a magazine. You <laughs> just, just phoned me. I'm on deadline. <laughs> it was literally. What are they expecting you to do? Uh, well, uh, the reason for it was um, part of it. They, they initially went, yeah, 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 come in, and then they said, oh, you've just got to write a little 200 word thing to show us that you you know you understand things, and it has to be in the style of a columnist. And I oh, took okay. that to mean you know you understand the media and blah blah blah. So yeah. I wrote this thing in a quite a weird Will Self thing, and it had to be about your favourite memory. And I was saying, oh, well, you know, the weird thing about memories is that the most important thing that's ever happened to me is the one thing I can't remember, which is being born and blah blah. blah. And I was trying to show a little something, and they said, uh, no, no, no. Well, we actually wanted to find out what your favourite memory was. Right. And so I had to write another one about passing my driving test, and they went, great, you're in. <laughs> so, so that's how I got in. And what did you study? You do three years there. Yeah, the, the I last. St- year, it's still a mystery to me what you do for three years. On it's, a, it's a lot of theory, yeah. um, but then, it, again, it's the project. Right. I wanted to know how to make the ideas in my head real. Okay. And they've got all the equipment, right? They yeah. have the best equipment. And so if I knew how to make a radio show, then suddenly all my ideas for radio shows I could make, I could try and make like an on the hour. I could bring those influences in. They had the TV studio, and I wasn't particularly interested in that because I wanted things that I could make. Yes. And that's radio because you don't need as many people. Of course. You can sit down and you can do it yourself. So that's really interesting because a lot of people with media ambitions are quite amorphous mm. and they can't really tell you what or why they want it. They just know that they want to be in the media. Yeah. Because of our adult life, it's become a really cool thing to do, a yeah. really cool thing to be. You're, you're 
you're coming at it from exactly the opposite end. You you want to get the tools to create the stuff that you already know you want to create. Yeah. I didn't care about, you know, lectures about semantics no. and uh, all that. I just wanted to get back and come up with an idea and be able to learn how to make it. And so I was never happier than when it was like, all right, off you go for three weeks. Um, now you're going to make a documentary. What are you going to make it about? And then I go off and do it. Um, Were you and- any good? Well, I hope so. I remember the documentary I made, I managed to, because I was sort of keeping things going uh, while I was at university, uh, so I didn't have to work an hour price yeah, yeah, yeah. or at the bar. I could still write for people. And so I'd get weird requests that would come in, and I got asked if I'd go and spend a couple of nights in a haunted house and be sort of the man on the street and kind of essentially just be like, I'm terrified the mm. whole time. Mm. And it was supposed to just be us in a place and what happened instead was lots of very odd, inexplicable things started happening at the stroke of midnight. Shut up. No, I will not shut up. (laughs) Um, And I was there to record it all. And what starts off as quite a fun, lighthearted documentary, only over 20 minutes, turns into something that's actually quite scary. And it taught me how to use silence and the power of silence, which is something, you know, you use very well. You do in your job. Those moments that can become much more powerful if you just Mm. leave it be. Just give it a moment. Let it sink in in that horrible phrase. And so, so I, would, I would learn all that kind of stuff. And then the last year was advanced radio, and that was, that was all kind of... That's your choice. You choose yeah, your module for the and you get, year. But they ran it brilliantly because it would be like, right, we're going to do a live week on the radio. So we're going to actually create these programmes. The news has to come in. There's a news team. They have to compete with actual national news teams. So we'd send people down to the Old Bailey. Really? And they ended up getting brilliant course, quotes. Then. Oh, it was great. And... Chris Smith from Radio 1 would come in and run the whole thing so that we'd have all our programming and Piers Plowright, the documentary maker, would come in and he'd do documentaries. And so it was always a puzzle to me that media got these bad reps. Well, I can see why I feel stupid now. Well, no, my my boss at the magazine, he said, I would not employ you. No. He said, if you tried to come back after this course, I would not employ you. (laughs) It would actually make you worse. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But I was just like, I've got to do it. I've got to do it. And no regrets at all. None. So, again, you're already this... Because it's, it's, I always think of people as having a, a fixed goal and then sometimes by accident they end up finding enormous fulfilment doing something different from the fixed goal. But you're already a plate spinner at this point. You're already... The fancy word is a portfolio career these days. But then, you know, it was it was quite odd to be confident enough to think, well, I can do a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of the other. Well, the only way to do stuff is to do stuff. Yeah. Um, and to um, give it a go. If it's something that you want to do and it's exciting and the opportunity's there, then you should you should jump in. So, and, and obviously, if you're getting commissioned to do stuff, you're still doing a bit. Is networking the right word? Did you keep you put yourself out there? No, I wouldn't. I find I find that kind of thing very um, awkward. Yes, but weirdly, it did help me in in the sort of the next step, but not not because I meant to. Right. Um, uh, so I, I finished my course and. Um, uh, Edinburgh was happening, the Edinburgh Festival, and I was asked to go and um, judge, um, be a judge on the Perrier Awards. Why? Um, so you've done it again because of the magazine, or because or? I, at that stage I'd started doing a bit for Melody Maker okay. magazine. Okay, and that was because I'd landed an interview with someone. And I had loads of extra material, and I thought I'd quite like to do something for Melody Maker. And oh, so you'd done the interview as part of your studies. I'd done the interview for another newspaper or something like that. I was measuring bloody inside legs at this point <laughs> in my career, and I was thinking I'm never going to. 
get commissioned to do anything and you go, I can't do that. I'm too busy doing my haunted house documentary. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm going to do my massive Melody Maker cover piece. Well, yeah, the, the Melody Maker was very small. Did but you realise at the time that you were winning? Or did it, did it just... Because you, you, you come across very much as just, well, yes, this is, I'm just muddling along and everything that's happening is well, wonderful. Well, I just want to do stuff. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. there's stuff to be done. You make it sound so matter of fact. Well, I, yeah, I guess so. But then you, there's a certain amount of luck that has to come into it as For well. For sure, yes. So, like, one of the lucky things that happened was uh, I did the the Perrier Awards, and yeah. that was very much because I was... They had people from The Guardian, The Independent... So you were writing, you were on the scene. Yeah, but they okay. wanted someone to represent the youth. Of course. And Melody Maker represented the youth. Yes. And also on the panel of judges was this guy who became a very important figure in my life, but I didn't know at that point. And his name was John Pigeon, And he was an editor at the BBC, which I thought at that stage, because I been doing some editing digital editing yeah. i thought he was an editor with razor blades yeah in tape. fact he was in charge right of bbc radio comedy yes and i had just applied for a job a traineeship at bbc radio comedy and i'd got on well, really well with john but when i found out that i'd applied for a job with him yeah i did everything i could to avoid him for the rest of the festival. Nervousness or just... I didn't want him to think that I was trying to be his oh, mate. Oh, I love that dynamic. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course I do. I, I didn't want him to, to look back at our interactions and think, what if he was only being friendly because of this? Yeah, of course. Whereas I felt, I've made a friend. Oh, and so he see, would Kat, like... Catelyn Moran was here a few weeks ago and she, she had a similar experience, but she dealt with it when she was interviewing lots of famous rock stars by being really, really rude to them. Because <laughs> she didn't want them to think she was trying too hard to Try, be. Oh, God. So you went for the complete avoidance. I just like, technique. I can't, you know, I'm not so going to be... he probably felt that he, he'd offended you. I think maybe he did. He was like, it's Danny's turn, what's happened there? <laughs> but, um, but anyway, I ended up um, going in for an interview and uh, I, I got the job. And all I wanted to do then was as a trainee was was make shows with the people that I knew yes. on the scene who were friends who I thought were extraordinarily talented. Funny, funny people. Yeah, but who weren't known at right. that stage, really. Um, so Ross Noble okay. um, and the Boosh, Mighty Boosh. You, you produced the original. So again, I, I didn't know all this stuff until I started digging in for today. <laughs> you produced the Mighty Boosh radio show. Yeah, which was the first, um, the first thing that they'd sort of put out there. I'd seen the Boosh in a room above a pub with 12 other people. Gosh. And I remember just years later being at Brixton Academy and there oh. were thousands of oh, them yeah. and they were all dressed as Noel and Julian. <laughs> and just thinking back to, to all those things, but it wouldn't happen without this guy, John Pigeon. Okay. Because we wanted to make the bouche and we went to Radio 4 and said, it's the bouche, right? We want yeah. to do it. And they wrote back and word for word said, the mighty bouche are one million miles away from what we want on Radio 4. <laughs> <laughs> so that's quite a... That's yeah. quite a note. Mm. Seems a million, quite, it's a, a it's million, a million miles. miles. <laughs> it's it's a long way. And um, but John, you know, I was a bit down about it. And John was like, "Well, do you know what? Well, I'm sure we can do something." So he found some money, and we thought we're going to make it for local radio, right? So we ended up BBC, BBC local radio, London, right? But that didn't the day to day start? Not the day that on the hour start on BBC. I think Radio London didn't GLR, didn't it? So yeah, G, yeah, that's it. Is that how that? I, I think so because Chris ah. Morris was there doing a show, and him and Yannucci became friends. It's quite depressing because that that notion of that kind of fertile backwater wouldn't exist now, really, would it? No, it would I don't think so. Too corporatized, and but you got the money, you got to make the show, albeit for local BBC. Yeah, and here was the thing, right? So I tried to do it in a studio with Nolan Julian and. It, just, it wasn't quite firing because they need a lot of space and mm. they want to keep going and that. So we moved it to a disused disco in Shoreditch and there was a back room that looked like this yeah. and it smelled of foxes. Oh, lovely. Um, and over there was, in another room, was a man running a scam or a junk mail 
like a dozen fax machines. This is <laughs> dates it sending out spam faxes all over the world. Seriously, yeah. And there was a dog that would just walk around called Red, and there was an American model on roller skates. It was really odd. Um, and but so we started to make the show in this little room, and we Noel built a studio, a soundproof studio out of velvet and stuffed animals. It was the most boosh thing that could yeah. have happened. And we delivered it, and it went out. <laughs> it went out on BBC London. At midday on a Saturday, <laughs> right, when all the largely male listenership at that yeah. point wanted to do was listen to football. Football, isn't it, on Saturday? So it's like, we're just going to take a half-hour break from talking about the football to have the whimsical zoo-based adventures of uh, Howard Moon and Vince Noir. And it was a disaster. Was they, were, oh, they were furious. The complaints. Was going, Why have you done this? ringing off the hook. Yeah. All kind of, yeah. What have you put a zoo on for? Yes. I don't get it. But then Radio 4 heard it and went, do you know what, actually... This this would work. A million this, miles, yeah, disappeared, and they put it on. And, it um, what, what, when you see them uh, with twelve other people in a room above a pub, I I, I, I was going to ask you a sort of highfalutin question, but you're if I've followed you properly, you just you have confidence that if it makes you wait yourself, then it's going to be popular if you brought yeah. it to a wider audience. You're looking for a voice, yeah, you know, and and the voice is. Um, you know, that's what people look for in, in everything. In America, sitcoms are all about finding a unique voice. Yeah, Stand-up, yeah. Netflix specials are all about the unique voice. Um, the funny comes with it. Um, but then you have people now doing so well, like Hannah Gadsby, who is someone not many people had heard of a few months ago, no. um, has done a special on Netflix, which all the American comics are going, this is incredible. Wow. And it's all because of uh, her position, her voice, and you know what she's saying. And it can be saying something important and highfalutin, or it can just be a unique voice and a, a unique way of bringing laughs to the table. And the Bush... Um, did that from day one. Yes. They were just... It was, I mean, it's the, it's the classic double act in a lot of ways, isn't it? One person trying to do something serious and the other one going, what are you doing? It's more common mind. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, or the other one doing something silly and the serious one going, what are you up to? <laughs> and then it all comes... That's all it, any of these things classic are. Classic dynamic. But it's brilliant. It is. Ross Noble as well, who you, you, you produce Ross Noble Goes Global again. Another example of someone with a unique voice. The great thing about uh, Ross is, and I've travelled all over the world with him, and I forget sometimes how good he is, which I always I tell him as a compliment, but he takes as an insult. We did a show where we travelled around the world, and we, we walked around Shanghai, and I'd, like, set him little things. So I'd, like, I'd just be like, let's just follow that fella for a while, and you just commentate on him, and we'll see where it leads us. And then suddenly he's on a stage, and he's talking about that, talking about following this guy mm-hmm. in a brilliant imaginative, original way that he's just got a bunch of strangers in the palm of his hands. Uh, and he'll come off stage and he'll go, did I miss anything? And I'll go, um, you could say something about, like, I don't know, the, ch- the chocolates. Uh, and he'll walk back out and do a 10-minute encore just about the chocolates. Wow. And he his, his leg starts to go after a couple of days if he's not gigged. Really? He's got that need Gosh. to do the next gig and he feels very uncomfortable if he doesn't do it. Which you don't have. You don't have a need. And you don't, at this point, you, you haven't found a voice of your own. For stand-up at that stage? Well, for for, no, for or, anything, really. For anything. Because, I, mean, I mean, your voice comes through in your books, it comes through in all the work that you've done. But you're, you're at the moment, you're a facilitator of other people's voices. Yeah. Were you aware of that? Yeah, or, right. I was. And I liked that in yeah. some ways. You worked on Dead Ringers as well. I did. Yeah. Which wasn't as appealing. No. It was more... You wanted, I wanted a project. project. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't I? Yeah, I wanted projects. Yeah. I wanted to go, this is them, and this is what we can do, yes. and let's make their project. And eventually, um, I... I got to the point um, a little while later where I was like, I'm, I'm giving away all my ideas. Right. 
and I'd quite like to do some stuff. I'd quite like to do my own things. Have your name on the door, as it were. Have my name on the door, have the control over it. Because obviously when you're facilitating other people's stuff, uh, you know, if you're a good producer, I think, then you'll, you'll help them get to the best stuff. Mm. But really, the decision should be theirs. Yes, I see. Because uh, you have to have that respect. So at this point, there is a sense of wanting to, as you say, keep your own ideas, maybe do things in your own image. And also just wanting to get on with it. I just want to crack on. And if I'm not cracking on with it, if I'm not getting on with something, or if, uh, or if I just see myself in a position where if I stayed at the BBC, there would just be more and more yeah. projects coming in that I'm not that into, right. that I'd try and do a good job at, but I would just be stuck. So restlessness. Yeah. A sort of restlessness. And this is roughly around the time you and Dave Gorman came to public problems. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And that, that, although it was his name on the project, that, looking back, was yours as well. Well, it's his. It's, it's, it, you, it was but, your but idea. Dave, the bet was that he couldn't find 54 people in the world yeah. with the same name as him. Yeah. And I had to sort of play a character of, in, in the, uh, you know, oh, I'm not enjoying this. Yeah. But, of, you know, of course. Of course I was. Uh, it, it was. It was enjoyable because it was a project and it was pushing something forward. It was a collection. It was um, going out, meeting these people, adding them, to uh, to a collection of men all called Dave Gorman yeah. and telling a story. More from Danny in a moment, but here's Russell Kane to tell you about his new show on Joe. Hi, Russell Kane here, and I'm hosting a brand new podcast for Joe, Boys Don't Cry, where I get a bunch of men together and force them to talk about the things we never talk about. Body hair, body shape... Why do girls only fancy bastards? All the things we worry about but never discuss. Oh, and I'll also have a girl helping me each week just to make sure we're not talking rubbish. So go to wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, wherever, and download Boys Don't Cry now. Cheers, Russell. Now, back to Danny Wallace. When I was back on the magazines, I used to do just weird um, things, just little projects for myself. There was one very um, long, boring summer when I was a teenager, and I, um, I decided to see if I could write the most boring joke I could to see what I could do with it. Yeah. Right? So I wrote this joke, and the joke was, um, <laughs> Inspector Poirot says, it's a Poirot joke, Inspector Poirot says, um, oh, there's, there's something fishy about this case, uh, to which Captain Haddock replies, um, that's because I'm a fish. Now, that doesn't work on any level, right? Poirot is saying this, but then he's, worked, he's teamed up with Captain Haddock, but yeah. he's from Tintin, mm. so there's a Belgian connection. Oh, yeah. But he's animated, and, and all, he's not a fish, but he's just said he is. Doesn't work. Mm. So I sent this off, uh, and I just said uh, underneath, please do not steal this joke, or I'll find out and report you. And I put in, like, a stamped addressed envelope to try and get some replies. Hallmark cards wrote back and said they were very impressed with the standard of my work. Uh, but there were no uh, no openings at present. <laughs> um, I think it got read out on the radio. Richard Whiteley wrote back to me, yeah. furious. Really? Yeah. He he just went, your joke is lousy, underlined. Uh, and he was so disgusted by it, uh, he wrote a PS and just went, PS, for my reply, I've used my own envelope. He wouldn't even use my envelope. But the best reply I got, and the thing that made me, and I, I missed it because I lost it, and I lost it for 20 years. Um, I, I knew I'd got a reply from Ronnie Barker. Oh, wow. And I remembered that there was something really funny about it. And it was only just a few weeks ago that I was unpacking some boxes and I found the reply from Ronnie Barker. And it just went, there's <laughs> uh, a load of stuff, very nice stuff. And then him just kind of going, I've retired from showbiz, not in the market for new material. And he said, but I can tell you, brackets, and this is a promise, close brackets, I will never use your joke, not even in private conversation. 
That sounds lovely, isn't it? So I was always keen on doing these little things, these Entirely little Entirely for your own amusement. Entirely for my own amusement. But with this kind of contagion to it, in the sense that it could catch. It and could lots catch. of people could join in, but you, that isn't where you get your fulfilment from, necessarily. I, not necessarily, but it was, it, was, it, was, it was just creating a moment. Yeah, uh, that's really, really And having lovely. a story, you know? I like having stories about stuff. So the Dave Gorman thing goes nuts, probably bigger than any of you expected. Yep. And you then presumably start getting recognised a bit. You, mm-hmm. you have a degree of celebrity. Do you enjoy that side of things? I enjoy it to a point. I'm much more comfortable with people who have maybe read something yes. or listened to the radio. Rather than just clocked you. They've got a yeah. connection with, with one of the stories that you yeah, told. Yeah, exactly. Because for a while, you know, I was doing a whole bunch of um, um, of telly that I, I sort of fell out of love with because they were What weren't. sort of stuff are you doing? I ended up... It moved very, very quickly. Yeah, that's right. What was first? I ended up doing some documentary stuff. And then I, then I did a documentary where I started my own country, mm-hmm. which I very much enjoyed doing because that was a project. And then all these offers came in that, that it felt like um, I, should, I should try and have okay. a go at. Yes. So before I knew it, it was like I'm walking out at TV centre, hosting a live show on BBC One yes. on a Saturday night. Yes. Which felt like things I should do, but they weren't things I think it wasn't me it wasn't it, it felt like a different version of me doing okay. it okay it felt like there was a there's me in the books and on the radio yeah, yeah, yeah. and then there was like a presenter Showbiz, yeah, and I didn't feel comfortable uh sort of in that role okay um so so when very that, confident that because you'd be what in your early thirties by now or if that late no late twenties late twenties early thirties so, so again that temptation is to rush through any door that's ajar because it's so hard to get a career in this game and yet you were already wise enough you're quite quite an old soul do you think well but it's not that I don't want to make it seem like it was uh, I just went right I'm not doing no 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 but you were wise enough to to, to recognise the relationship between fulfilment and work rather than thinking that one you know just getting the result getting the gig was enough to make you happy i think so because also it is that thing of when suddenly you're on like um when people are coming up to you on the street or or, or on trains or, or or whatever if they if it's just because they've seen you on telly yeah they haven't even seen me, do you know what I mean? They've not yeah. seen the real... So it's fake. It's yeah. weird. It's um, hollow. It's hollow. I remember seeing Neil Hamilton and his wife get mobbed by schoolchildren once because they'd been <laughs> on a reality television show. Yeah. And, I, and that's what you're talking about. I mean, yeah. Because you want to say, so if you knew anything about these people, you would not be excited. Yeah, exactly. You'd be crossing the road to avoid them. But, you would, yeah. But, but he's winning a bat with his dank memes. With his dank, dank, dank memes. But that, so that, so it's the what you want to be admired for the work. Admired is not a word you're going to be comfortable with. You want people to like the work and if as a result of liking the work they want to like you that's cool but if they're liking you just because they've seen you in a in a cheese advert that's not could you ever do any adverts uh no i haven't oh. done any advert yeah, oh i've want... done i've done some sort of if it's an imaginative idea i sometimes get drawn to it okay um but they've always been disasters <laughs> so so you, you weren't mad for this you were never going to become mr saturday night no you realized that yourself even if the doors had opened up you probably wouldn't have rushed through them i think to a certain extent i could have just kept going a bit yeah but i, I started saying no more and it's a huge moment when yeah you start saying no to stuff but i remember being in the shower and and at the time i was doing like a big bbc one reality show yeah. and some as in presenting it and some some other stuff and there's another thing coming in and i remember thinking if that goes away that's fine right and I had that real thought. And yeah. it, weirdly, it took a lot of pressure off me. Yeah, yeah. Because I was sort of keeping it going because I felt like I, I kind of had to. Like a treadmill. 
Yeah, it's like, well, it's come in, so I better. Yeah, but you thought no. Well, I matter. thought I just it thought it was quite it liberating. Yeah, I was just uh, like I've got other stuff going on, and, and the other stuff, as everyone who's followed us this far is going to realise, is the stuff that you get to make yourself. Yeah, so, and that, that is what you learn now. You learn the cachet to say, "Can I have a go at this?" And people would give you money to go off and do it. So, what what came first in that period? Because the chronology's a bit mixed up. Was it, would it was it join me or yes man? Join me came before yes man, but was join me before or after you'd achieved this kind of. Join Me was right before. Yeah. So Join Me sort of led into it, and it, Join Me led to my first bit of telly. And it was a bit like the joke, the, the rubbish Poirot joke, wasn't it? You did a yeah. thing. You put a post, you put an advert in a classified magazine inviting people to join you. Yep. And it, and it, but, so you had no idea whether that was going to go There's anywhere no at all. So you're doing it again to amuse Danny Wallace. You're not yeah. doing it to notice me, notice me. You're just no. saying, this would be funny. Let's see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what happened? Well, uh, <laughs> a lot of stuff happened, and it was just about keeping that idea going. So I wanted to see whether people would join something yeah. without knowing who they were joining, or what they were joining, or why they were joining, or even what joining meant. And I didn't know either. And so I asked them to send a passport photo to uh, my address. And the idea of the passport photo was weirdly. I mean, this is pre Facebook, pre Twitter, mm-hmm. but now we're in a world where you can join anything, yeah. you can follow anyone. You can sign a petition. You can do any of this stuff. And it's sort of devalued um, uh, that all those things, in a, in a sense, joining something. The effort, the exercise yeah. of joining has, has become... You're not really do, you're yeah, losing anything. You're sure. just clicking a button. And um, I wanted people to send me a passport photo because it showed trust in the unknown. It showed effort. If someone was going to dig out a passport photo yeah. or have one taken yeah. and then send it to someone and they don't know who it is... That says something about that person. It shows that they're up for something. And imagine what we could achieve if we wanted to achieve something. And so we, well, I began. And um, I got my first uh, joinee, um, as I called them. He's a fellow called Jonesy. And uh, Jonesy sent me a, a menu for his uh, local Indian, said, I recommend the dance sack. <laughs> so I went there and I had the dance sack. And I was like, this is a great, I think I was telling myself that this is the best curve I've ever had. And I wanted to meet him and he wanted to meet me. And so I wrote him a letter and I wanted to find out why he had joined. Yeah. Right? That's yeah. all I, I wanted to find out why he had joined so I could expand that. I sort of forgot that he might have questions. Sure. Like, like what have I joined? Yes, yes. So yes. we meet up in a pub in London and my mate Ian's going, don't go meet with him because he's clearly going to kill you. Yeah, of course. And Jonesy's mate Dave was going, don't go meet with him because he's clearly going to kill you. Yeah. And we sit there, two quite scared men, and <laughs> we, uh, we have this discussion and he's asking me these questions and I'm trying not to... I'm trying to keep his interest. Sure. But without answering it without so, admitting that there's nothing yeah right so he's going so how so so how so what is this join me and i'm going well so about people joining together people always joining and he's like well how many people and i go numbers it's not about numbers of people it's about quality <laughs> he's like yeah but a, a ballpark and i go again you know you're not a, you're not a number you're a man and eventually i have to tell him and i just go uh it's just you it's two <laughs> And he's like, I can see him looking at me again, including, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And he realises that he's joined the worst club in the world with possibly a psychopath. But him being him, he just took a sip of his pint and he just went, do I get a badge or something? Oh, cool beans. And then his flatmate joined and it spiralled and then I kept it going. And to cut a long story very short, tens of thousands of people from all over the world joined and continue to join to this day. And still get, I mean, you still do Carmageddon. We still do big meetups because the idea became, all right, let's do good in the yeah, world. Yeah. So every Friday became a good Friday. And this was when the random acts of kindness started spreading. Exactly. So, exactly. so the internet was... was did, did the internet sort of come along and 
harness some of this enthusiasm or was it all done by word word? I mate? set up a forum, yeah. which is all you could really do in those days. But then, random acts. Because I remember yeah. this. I remember random acts of kindness. It, it's, 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 it, and this is when you you were no longer Dave's sidekick mm. or whatever the word yeah, yeah. you prefer is. This is when you... And, and so your first real foray into Danny, your own stuff, yeah. as opposed to presenting other people's stuff, was actually quite a lot to do with altruism, which follows through almost all the rest of the work. I think so, yeah. I Just think the notion that people should be nicer to each other. People should be nicer, and there are things you can do, one simple thing yeah. in every life that can change everything. Where does that come from? You're not religious or... No, spiritual. I think I just believe in. I apart believe from the in, ghosts. Apart from the ghosts, I, I, I believe in people. You know, yeah. I think people are uh, fundamentally good, and I think that my my parents probably have a lot to do with that. I never saw my parents be rude to anyone ever. I only ever saw them be nice. Right. I only ever saw my dad deal with other men's aggression in a very calm and polite and nice way. Yes. So I think that probably. Affected me quite deeply. Clearly, yeah. and, and there's a there's a, a sort of affirmative side to your personality as well, which emerged in the next project, which was Yes Man. Yeah, when, Yes Man. Yeah, it always reminded me slightly of the Dice Man. Yeah, right, didn't it? it was yeah, Luke Reinhardt book. But you, instead of running the risk of doing vile things, well, you did run the risk of doing. I suppose. Oh, I ran the risk of everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, so you this know, was saying yes to everything for yeah, six months. Yeah, the Dice Man uh, is is fantastic. He he would have. But he would have six choices, and he would get to decide mm. the choices. I would have one choice and no dice, which is just to say yes. So the answer is already yes, and it's going to be yes the whole way. And it's going to be yes to favours and requests and suggestions. And it's funny that you mentioned Luke Reinhardt. George Cockcroft is his real name. Is it? He got in touch with me one day. No way. And so I went to New York to meet him, and I spent a couple of days with him. And he was in his 80s at the time. And, um, you know, any walk to this bar, a huge sort of cowboy-looking man with a big sort of cowboy black hat, all dressed in black. And we sat there and um, we just got hammered in this bar in upstate New York. Oh, cool. And at one point he just went, he was like, I want you to see this view. And so we went outside and realised that we'd been drinking. And I, was, I suddenly realised he, he wanted to drive me somewhere. Right. And that thing of, well, that's illegal, yeah. but I'm the yes man and he's the dice man. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we going to do here? And I was like, you got very slow. And so we just went down this sort of abandoned thing. And he missed the turning. And he went, I've not missed that turning in 30 years. I was like, okay, this okay. is not bode well. <laughs> so he turned the car around and he missed it again. And so we had to turn it around again. Now we hit a small wall that he didn't see, and then we now made the turning. But we were approaching a small squirrel that was in the middle of the road, and I was going, George, George, and thunk, and he just killed a squirrel. And I felt terrible, and I said, I think we've just killed a squirrel. And he just went, I don't care. <laughs> and that was the difference between of the yes man and the dice man, and the dice man well, but in real life yeah. is that I really don't want to do that yeah, 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 yeah. but I guess yeah. we have and yeah. he's like I couldn't give a shit either way how fantastic yeah and, and other people followed your lead in terms of on, on yes man other people started saying yes oh yeah I get point. some of the well I, with yes man I get some of the most amazing letters from people who've, um, who've who've read it and then made a change in their life and ended up married. Well, um, you ended up married as a result of Yes Man. Yeah, it, through, certainly through, through making it, being a different person in a sense, or just being that guy who just gets out there. But I think we all like those people yeah. who, when we say, are you coming to this party? And they go, yeah. When they turn up, yeah. it means something. Fun Bobby. 
Fun Bobby's the name of everybody from now on. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so no, Yes Man um, has a special place in my life. But, I bet but it join does. me, join me really does as well yes. because they're, they're they're companion pieces, aren't they? Yeah, I would say so in, in that sense. And then, and then, do you put pressure on yourself? What am I going to come up with next? Because this now is, albeit that you've still got several plates spinning. We haven't even mentioned the fact that you're in Assassin's Creed, <laughs> have we? Which is yeah, the yeah. thing that makes me most jealous <laughs> of everything you've ever done. But this is now. This is what you do now. You come up with really cool, funny ideas and you turn them into books and films and television programmes. So after those two huge successes, How to Start Your Own Country came next. Mm -hmm. Is there ever points where you're thinking, oh, I need to come up with something, or does it all just organically happen? No, there are there are definitely points where you're like, oh, I need to come up with an idea, yeah. but, but that's the best way to not come up with an idea because it's just, you just can't. You know, I'm going to have an idea. Yeah, of course. Um, it's like writing a poem, isn't it? Or, it yeah. Or, you just can't do it to order. So you no. just wait for the moment. And occasionally you, you, you panic that the moment isn't going to drop, but you, you have faith that it will. Yeah, and while it's not there, you go and do something else more practical, like a radio show oh, okay. or something that is happening uh, yeah. that you can then pour ideas specific to that show into. So uh, you're still working, you're still... Something less mercurial. Yeah. Something which is a bit more form yeah. formal and structured. Yeah, exactly, and it's happening. We should mention that Yes Man became a film starring Jim Carrey. Yeah. Which, I mean, the, the, this again, just casually, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> How did that come? I mean, what, what you, you get a call from your agent saying you're never going to guess who's been on the phone or something like that? How does it... When you've, when you've finished a book, if it's getting some buzz already just from the idea, if it's starting to get hot, they will then bike copies of the book out rather than email it. Or nowadays they watermark a PDF. Anyway, the idea is that you get a private copy that is traceable and it gets sent out at the same time to lots of different studios. Oh, okay. And then they have a time limit yeah. to get back to you. And with Yes Man, I mean, one company, one famous company, they tried to, to screw me over a bit and we were like, well, you know what, we're just going to wait to see what everyone else says. Different studios wanted it. Yeah. But I went with the nicest people. Fair enough. They didn't offer quite as much as the other people, but I went with the nice people yes. who had acted brilliantly and who I really liked. And we went with them. And um, and it was supposed to be a Jack Black movie. Oh, was it? And then Jim Carrey heard about it and uh, wanted to do it. And that was quite an easy yes. Of course it was. <laughs> and are these, are these pinch yourself moments? or, or, or that, Yeah, I think back to that time. Because at the same time you think, well, it, this might not happen. You know, I'd had it before where people buy the rights to something and it doesn't happen. Yeah. But you've already bought champagne by then. Yeah, of course. And, uh, spend the money. Yeah. And, uh, but I had a pretty good idea this one would happen. And it was a bit of a pinch yourself moment. But at the same time, there were lots of other things going on at the same time. Right. So that again, meant I couldn't enjoy it. Oh, OK. Because it wasn't the only thing going on. I yeah. was doing How to Start Your Own Country at the same time. Yeah. And I was doing some BBC stuff. And I was thinking about the next book. So it was a period of just sort of intense... Almost too much, almost too much going mm. on. So you mentioned how to start your own country, which again was a, a project designed chiefly to amuse yourself, which <laughs> yeah. ended up capturing the imagination of lots of other people. Last yeah. time our paths were crossing on a regular-ish basis, you, you were very casually developing your own American sitcom. Yeah. Yeah, and that <laughs> happened because I was on my way to uh, the airport in LA for some reason, and I dropped in on my agent, and he said, so when's the next book? Hmm. And I said, it's a while away. And he said, it sounds like that's a while away. And I was like, it is. That's why I said that. <laughs> and he said, well, you know, sometimes we can sell um, just the idea of, uh, you know, a column. We sometimes, you know, we'll take something from Rolling Stone or whatever yeah. and we'll turn it into something. And he said, have you written anything? And I said, uh, well, I write a column back home for a magazine called Shortlist. Yeah. And I said, um, I'm thinking about maybe doing a book one day. And I'd never said the title out loud, right, to anybody. And I said, I'm thinking of calling it Awkward Situations for Men. 
and his eyes lit up. And ten minutes later, no word of a lie, this office was packed with men and women in suits who I'd never seen before, mm-hmm. all going, we're very excited about this project. And there wasn't a project. It's just there wasn't an idea. Words. Yeah, it was some words. <laughs> and so I had to come back and I said to my publisher, I said, look, can I do a book called Awkward Situations for Men? And he's like, why? And I said, because I think I can make it. I've just offer. sold the food. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've just sold the rights. So I think there's this. And they go, well, yeah, okay. So we do that. And then in the meantime, I'm. Um, uh, I tell uh, we, we get a producer on board mm. who is who produced Yes Man. He also produced Harry Potter, so he's a good guy to have in your corner. He knows what he's doing. He gives Warner Brothers a call, uh, so we get straight to the top, and I meet this amazing man, um, Peter Roth, who's like in charge mm. of all television, and he just went, "I love it." And it, again, it still wasn't a show; it was just um, no a title and me talking about things that have happened to me. And so he gets his team in, and then we all go off to ABC. And every single meeting went as well as it could go. It was like a fairy tale. I was thinking Hollywood's easy because yeah, yeah, yeah. it's you ne- next meeting, next meeting, until suddenly I'm with the the ultimate boss at ABC, who goes, "I love it. I want to do it." And then he goes, "Who do you think should be in it?" And I said, "I don't know. You know, that's kind of up to you guys." And he goes, "I think you should be in it." And I go, okay, yeah, all right, yeah, good, I'll be in it, fine. Uh, and then suddenly I'm back there a couple of months later on a set with the director of Seinfeld, who's done 80 Shut episodes. Up. And I was like, there's a lot of traffic here, not realising that yeah. these were all cars that had been brought in for yeah. the thing. Walking around with my glamorous Hollywood wife, who we, we cast, and yeah. my crazy, kooky best friend. Um, it was better than that. <laughs> yeah, of course. But, um, uh, and uh, making, a, making a sitcom. And... Um, it got down to, like, the last three or four that they were going to commission. It felt like this could happen, but it might not. Sure. There were questions about should we have done it, filmed it the way we filmed it, or should it be with an audience? We did it the way we did it. And then uh, I got the call late at night from Peter, and uh, I was like, I've got a bottle of vintage champagne here, yeah. and I've got a bottle of rough whiskey. Yeah. Which one am I drinking? And he said, drink them both. Oh, and I was like, okay. Well, so, it's but again, it's not good <laughs> And he said, they want to reshoot it. They want to do it as a multi-camera Charlie Sheen-style comedy okay. with you there, and, and they want you to have a baby in it. Right, so it was getting kind of it was, homo- homogenised. I would still have done it. Sure. Because um, it was fun. Yes, of course. Um, but it just started to disintegrate at that point. Okay. And for a couple of days I was sad because yeah. it was so much work. Yeah. But also I was sad because I thought... I had an answer either way. Either it's over tonight, oh, of course, yes. or yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. or it's, we, or we kick off. Yeah. But instead, it was like here's another year of work. Yeah, and hope. Yeah, and so when it did finally go, I was just like, do you know what? I did that. We made it. Yeah. We went out with my nine-week-old baby. Yeah. We made a show. We cast it. We did the whole thing. I've got something weird to show him when he grows up. And lots of people don't get that chance. Yeah. So I was just like, I'll take that. And yet these things, if they come off, you you, you become one of the biggest stars in the world, potentially. Yeah, which things. is but, weird pressure. But, but but it helps that you don't live for that. Again, no. it's emerged throughout. Yeah. So what do you live for and how does it lead us towards Fuck You Very Much? Which, for fans of your work, would it be fair to say it's a bit more, I mean, despite the title and the, the, the subtitle, The Surprising Truth About Why People Are So Rude, it's quite academic, and you've you've gone in deep on this one, rather than yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, I wanted yeah. to see with all these things, with kids' books, with novels, with radio, with telly. I want to see if I can do something, and the only way to find out is to do it. And when you have an idea for something, you then think, what's the best way to use this idea? And if it's something you haven't done before, yeah, that doesn't mean you should not do it. 
that means you should try and serve the idea well. And this felt the best way to do this book. To genuinely dig really deep into why people are so rude. Yeah, absolutely. Because it baffles and confuses you as someone who, as you've explained with reference to your dad uh, and your mum, just isn't part of your arsenal. I don't understand it. Mm. I don't understand why people go straight to it. And I wanted to understand a thing happened to me where I was trying to buy a hot dog and the woman was extraordinarily rude. It's a beautifully told story. Well, <laughs> it's a nicely told story with no hot dog at the end of it. <laughs> and I went mad in my head because of it. Because I'm thinking, what? how did two people... It's a very simple thing. I yes. want a hot dog. You're selling hot dogs. Yeah, yeah, Sell me yeah, that yeah, hot dog. Yeah. I'm selling hot dogs. You want a hot dog. Here's the hot dog. That's the whole thing. And yet, two people failed to do it in such a spectacular fashion that it took an hour, and it took me being kicked out of a diner with my chains thrown after me, standing in the drizzle, going, what happened yeah, there? Yeah. Um, for me to then write a 200-word TripAdvisor review that wasn't enough for me, because that was the last straw for yes, me, that yes, moment. Yes. That was the last thing I could, I could handle without having to do something. To find out, yeah. to understand. I want yeah. to understand it. And so I thought... But it's not look- just about you, because it begins with a fellow who went off to join ISIS and got really upset by how rude they were. Yeah, he was, he was very disappointed. <laughs> he, he, he fled uh, a Morrison's in Buckinghamshire, and he was like, this is it, man, I'm going. I'm going to join ISIS. All my brothers in the desert, it's going to be wicked. Yeah. And he got there, and they kept taking his phone off charge without asking. Sometimes he'd go to prayer, and he'd realise that another ISIS member had taken his shoes, and he's like, that's not on. Sometimes they'd talk loudly at night or they'd just stare at him. Or when he brought the food in, because he'd cook for them, um, ISIS were just really, they were like squabbling children. And he was like, he just expected better of ISIS. And he was like, Do you know what? They're rude. And I thought that is brilliant. That's bang on, isn't it? Because it's like yeah. we all have our own standards. Yes, exactly. Even if we're plotting the downfall of Western civilization through violent means, we still get annoyed <laughs> if someone takes our phone off charge. You know what I mean? So we're all connected. So there's a fundamental, I suppose I can use that word, <laughs> with that. there's a fundamental desire to be respected. Yeah, and, there, that's what it is. Yeah. It's, 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 you feel people aren't giving you your due. Not you, but everyone. Yeah, yeah. everyone. And I think that actually, I, I was only thinking about this the other day, that some of the rudest people that we meet in everyday life tend to be people who have authority while maintaining low status, right? Gosh, yes. So it's the people um, you come across in airports particularly in America, who tell you you need to do something, yeah, you need yeah, to yeah, do yeah. that. And yeah. you're like, I don't need to, you want me to, and yeah, I'll do yeah, it because yeah, you've got a hat. Yeah, yeah. Or it's the <laughs> guy in the parking garage who just barks orders at you, or the bank teller. These are all people who've got some... Oh, that's a brilliant dynamic, isn't they've, they've it? They've got some authority. But not status. But not status. Yeah. And I was thinking about it just on the way in, and I was thinking about America right now, and all those people who for years uh, have been forgotten and who the world has sort of looked down on, who've been dubbed white trash, who've been dubbed stupid. They have very low status, right? But now they're in control. Now they've got power. Now they've got authority. So they're now using that power in quite an ugly way. Mm. Because I was talking to someone who was saying that power, we used to say power corrupts, but he thinks power liberates. Right. So suddenly we're seeing these awful things happening because the people have got the power to do whatever they want. And they feel liberated to do it because mm. I am in control. I'm going to teach you and you're going to respect me. Yeah. And that's where respect comes back in again. Gosh. So we, we, we want that respect 
because I want to I want to be able to buy a hot dog without feeling like yes, shoplifter. Yes, yes, yes. But there's an entire generation of Americans right now who are going. For years, you've disrespected me. We're going to make you respect us. We're going to show you what our power does, and we're not going to listen to you with your tears and your snowflakes and your beta nonsense. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. is how you are, a man or a woman in this. And and it's very. Uh, we know how dangerous it is. Sure. But but I'm trying to work out why again. And and your conclusions in this book, which John Ronson describes as a brilliant book, which is you know, wonderful. You're trying to sort of go a bit deeper than you have in some of your previous works. Sure. To get praise from Ronson is, is, yeah. is the gold standard. Yeah, yeah, so what, yeah. What is your what is your synthesis at the end of? Well, I, I feel that like the world has has become narrower and coarser and angrier for a lot of different reasons. There's many things that have happened just culturally that we can point to, things that we engage in every single day. Um, I think that we have to call rudeness out when we see it. I think that we have to... The only way to have a civilization um, is to be civil. Um, and um, now I should just start shouting obscenities out. I don't know if anyone window. can hear the Harry Krishnas that have just yeah, started singing exactly. in the background as we reach this point. Wouldn't it be great if I'm going, you're going to be civil, and I just <laughs> like, I lose it. Just start chucking stuff at them. <laughs> and that, I mean, that that is actually, I risk of sounding pretentious, it's kind of a unifying theme of all your work. Are you aware of unifying themes, or is it just a happy coincidence that because you indulge such personal enthusiasms, they end up sometimes speaking to the same truths. I think it goes back to that thing about uh, a voice and finding a voice and using the voice to say the things you want to say. Yes. I didn't realise that I have been writing about this for a decade. You have, haven't you? But I didn't realise. Right, that's Um, kind of what I mean. Someone else had to point it out to me. Yeah. And I I didn't realise. And yet it makes complete sense now. And and this this is my sort of uh, angry, happy... Shout! Although yes. you'll be pleased to know that um, recently I was in LA again and I bumped into Peter Roth, the guy right. that phoned me in the yeah, limo, yeah, yeah. and um, he said, "Come in tomorrow." And I went in and he said, "What have you been working on?" And I told him the hot dog story. That's all I told him. <laughs> and he went, "I want to make a sitcom." So I sold, sold the rights. But again, I was like, "This isn't really a show yet, is it?" He's like, "It's fine." He's like, "We'll, we'll work it out." So, um, so you're back in the game. So I'm back in the game, oh. but with this, um, and again, I've got to work out what on earth it's going to be. You've seen enough stories, in there, Danny Wallace? What a star! Thanks, James. Thank you, mate. I'm still smiling about saying the F word so much during the course of that interview, and, I, and I, I, I'm such a child, I'm probably not going to say it again. But the book is out now, and I hope you enjoyed finding out more about Danny Wallace as much as I did. Some of the other unfiltered guests that popped up during that interview, you can, of course, listen to those episodes from our back catalogue. Amanda Yanucci and John Ronson featured. Here's a little taste. I used to suffer from a kind of crippling anxiety that if I couldn't get my wife and son on the phone, um, they, they were dead. Yes. Um, and I would picture how they had died. Um, sometimes... When my, when my son was really young, my wife had fallen down the stairs, was lying at the bottom of the stairs with a broken neck. A kettle was boiling and my son was reaching up for the flex of a, of a just boiled kettle um, as I was phoning and the phone was ringing out. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, honestly, I just felt really upset just even re- remembering I can, that. Well, I, well, obviously, and it was that level of yeah. self-examination that made me think, crikey, this is a guy I should be reading every week. So, oh. I, so I did, and that that would be... How long ago would that be now? Uh, that was well, my son's 19 now. Yeah, so um, pretty much most of his life ago. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't... Yeah, so Paul McKenna kind of cured me. He hypnotised yes. me and cured me of... Of when I when my wife didn't pick up the phone, I no longer think she's 
dead. But I never asked him to cure me about my son because he was just a baby at the time. So I, I couldn't kind of imagine that one day he'd be old enough to pick up the phone. So now, if I can't get my son on the phone, I still think he's dead. Oh, Lord. Yeah. <laughs> so, so probably get a half cure of me. <laughs> Do go and check that out along with the rest of the back catalogue. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to Unfiltered. You can leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. And of course, if you know someone who you think might like it, Tell them about it. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. Brought to you by Joe.